following sermon was preached on September 19, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Pastor Zachary Groff preached this sermon entitled A Prophet Like Moses on Deuteronomy 18, 15-22. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. How can you be certain that play money is not real money? Have you ever opened up the Monopoly box? You take out the ones and the fives and you think, huh, I'm going to go down to the convenience store and get a carton of milk or a pack of gum with this. I bet you the cashier won't be able to tell this is just play money, that this isn't real money. Well, let's just play this out a little bit. Let's imagine you go down to the Dollar General or whatever it is at the end of your street in your neighborhood and you have a $5 bill from your Monopoly box and you go up to the cash register to get a pack of gum and you give them the $5 bill. Do you think that uh, cashier is going to accept that as currency? No. But what if that cashier had never seen a real $5 bill ever before? had never been trained on what is and is not real money, had merely been told some people are going to come in and pay with a card, some people are going to pay with a check, and then other people are going to pay with paper money. And when he says, well, I've never seen paper money, they say, oh, you'll figure it out, it's fine. Well, then you might actually have a chance of fooling that person into thinking that that play money is real money. How much more if you bring in a uh, counterfeit bill? A dollar that's designed to look like real money. So how would we train a cashier then to recognize the counterfeit? Would we have to get every kind of counterfeit in the whole world in front of him and say, don't accept any of this. This is all fake. No. There's a much simpler way about doing this, isn't there? You give him a real $1 bill and a real $5 bill. And a real $20 bill and so on and say, now this is the genuine article. Anything that doesn't look like this, don't take it. Now, of course, we also give them other tools like special markers in order to check to make sure the paper is the right thing. But my point here is in order to recognize a fraud, a counterfeit, a fake, all you need is the real thing set before you. If you get to know the real thing then you'll be able to recognize a fake without any trouble at all. In our passage today, the Lord God is preparing his people, his covenant community, his people Israel, to enter into the promised land, the land promised to Abraham, their forefather. And he knows that in that land, there are a bunch of fake prophets. People who claim to have access into the spiritual realm. People who claim to know mysteries beyond the normal human being's sight and understanding. And God is concerned to teach them how to distinguish from a fake prophet, a diviner, a soothsayer, a spiritist, a witch, and a true prophet. A herald of God, one inspired by the Holy Spirit to declare God's will to them, one like Moses, to whom he's speaking in this passage. We ought to be terribly concerned 
that we too can distinguish between those who spout out falsehood and those who declare the truth in righteousness. Leading up to this passage, it's very interesting where it's placed. We have in chapter 17 a um, uh, a list of rules and statutes for the kings of Israel. They didn't even know they were going to have a king yet, except that God tells them, you will have a king one day. This is how he ought to live. And then in the first eight verses of 18, God describes the place of the priesthood in society where the Levites and priests are, um, are to be located between the people and the tabernacle and how they are to function in society, but then here in uh, verses 9 through 14, Moses warns against false religion generally, and then picking up at 15, he gives direction as to how to recognize a true prophet and what to do in response to him. And so, systematically, in this and the surrounding context, God is preparing his people to enter into the promised land and preparing them to recognize what true leaders are in Israel. But very interestingly, this is what he says in verse 14, immediately before our passage. For those nations which you shall dispossess, the heathen, the pagan, the idolatrous nations in the promised land, um, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. This is what they do. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. And then God promises to raise up for the people of Israel a prophet like Moses. Whenever his people are in need of true instruction in faith and godliness. But he does more than make a promise. He also describes and regulates this prophetic office. In other words, he declares to his people what they ought to expect from the promised prophet. What they ought to expect him to be like. And then he tells them to what standard they ought to hold anyone claiming to be a prophet. What I seek to show you from this text as we go into a a three-week exploration of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. What I wish to show you today is that God promises to speak always to his people through a true prophet. Very simply, in this passage, God promises to speak always to his people through a true prophet. And we'll look at this under two headings, verses 15 through 18, God's promise of the prophet. And then verses 19 to 22, God's rules for the prophet. And the rules cut two ways. The rules for us in recognizing and listening to a prophet. And then the rules for the prophet himself, what standard we have there. So let's pick up at verse 15, looking at God's promise of the prophet. Notice what what is told to us here. As Moses speaks, in fact, I would say preaches in this sermon from Deuteronomy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. First things first. Notice that this is not a threat. This is not a judgment. This is not a statute or a rule. What is this? What is Moses declaring to them? He's declaring a promise to them. 
He's declaring a promise of God, a great and stunning promise that God will give a gift of a prophetic mediator. What I mean by that is someone who stands between God and man and declares God's will to man in a way that man can understand. How critical is this? Now, the people of Israel, as we see in our text a little bit later, they understand that they can't really interact and engage with God as a group of people. He's terrifying. He'll blow them away. On Mount Sinai or Horeb, as it's said in the text, they were utterly and completely terrified and laid low. And they begged for a mediator. And what does God say? He says, this is a good thing. You're right. You need a mediator. And then he doesn't just stop there. He actually gives them one. You see, the distance between the creator and the creature, between God and man, is so great. So much greater than between father and infant son. Or between human being and little flea, even. That distance between creator and creature is so great that we need a mediator to come in between us and to speak for him to us. And then also to take what we say and to perfect that and make it acceptable to him. Even if we had never sinned, I would contend, mankind would need this mediator. One to make plain and clear the declaration of God to man. And that's exactly what God promises it here. This great gift that God would speak with us through a prophet and not abandon us to our own devices, darkness, and destruction. Yes, even death. Psalm 74.9 actually turns this around and speaking of the exile and the silence of God as uh, there's a, a lapse in the presence of a prophet or at least an easily identifiable one. The psalmist laments, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. Who knows how long the exile will last? Who knows how long God will remain silent? Have you ever felt far distant from God? Yes, he's always present. We know he's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. But we don't always feel that, do we? And the Puritans used to call that the dark night of the soul. I think moderns typically call it depression. Martin Lloyd-Jones called it spiritual depression. It's when we feel that like God is far away from us, that he's not present. Well, here in this text, what God's promising to his people is I will always take an active interest in you. I will always be speaking to you. Are you going to where he speaks? That is the church, his word. Are we entering into prayer to receive from him something good and useful to us? Now, it's clear from this passage that God does not promise one prophet only, but rather a plurality of prophets. In fact, a succession of prophets, perhaps not, unbro not unbroken, but always God will make his word known to his people. Whenever they have a need for a Moses-like mediator between God and man, he will raise up a prophet even from among them to declare to them his will. This, this, uh, this statement, from among you, from your countrymen, from your midst, from your brethren, it's an emphatic statement that God's making. 
that the people should not turn or resort to pagan and heathen soothsayers or diviners, but rather that they should always wait on the Lord through his authorized heralds. This is a great problem even in our culture and society, even in Greenville, South Carolina. Yes, we have a lot of churches, and I praise the Lord for that, but how many fortune teller shops do you notice out here in Greenville if you drive around? I know it's probably even worse in a big city like Tampa. It certainly was in Philadelphia. It's like every little neighborhood has perhaps a little church or a couple churches, even double church, an inline church, and then, of course, the Roman Catholic church. But then would always have a fortune teller booth too. And it struck me as curious. I thought, you know, why would anyone go there for what's blinking in their flashing neon sign, spiritual guidance, when you have this wonderful outlet where the word of God is brought to bear without cost. There's no admission charge. You don't have to pay anything to receive spiritual guidance and nourishment. I may be preaching to the choir, but I wanted to put that in relief to you that this is a present temptation. Perhaps you even felt it. Oh, it'd be fun to go and get my tarot cards read or something like that or my palm read. But God gives a very stern warning right after he gives this glorious promise that you will never be without one to declare to you the will of God for your salvation. The heathen make their own way in seeking out spiritual um, insight from their soothsayers and their diviners. But God's people depend upon him alone. Isaiah said, to the law and to the testimony in Isaiah 8, verses 19 and 20. Against the soothsayers and the diviners that would be there in the land with his people. In verses 16 and 18, notice how... How Moses describes himself. He says, This is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. And then in verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. As Moses said in verse 15, like me. Like me and like you. What Moses means by this is expounded in verses 16 and 18 by reminding the people of that historical situation where they received the Ten Commandments from God through Moses. And what what he's telling them here is that the promised prophet was going to look like him. Is that he's going to have a big nose or be bald up on top or have a big beard? No, not, not like that. What we mean by resemble or look like Moses is that this promised prophet would make known the words or the will of the Lord standing between God and his people. That was Moses's prophetic function. He was a mediator. And so God is promising always to have a mediator between himself and his people. Now, this is generally an an attribute of every prophet in the Old Testament. It's common to all of them. Um, But Moses has a special relationship with God and with his people in this regard. Deuteronomy 34 verse 10 puts it this way. Since that time, since Moses died, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. Doesn't that contradict what we just read? 
in Deuteronomy 18? Ah, there's a specification. He details, like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So yes, there would be other prophets like Moses in that they would stand between God and man. They would receive from God and give to man. But they weren't quite as great as Moses. Receiving from God face-to-face revelation. Meeting with him in that way. Though this passage is not limited um, or is not restricted then to someone who's exactly like Moses. Let's say someone even greater than Moses. We'll get there. Yet it is referencing that figure that Moses is anticipating and that the nation would anticipate and call the Messiah. It includes all the prophets generally. And we see that in the call of uh, Jeremiah where he says that God has put the words in his mouth in Jeremiah 1.9 and then 5.14. I will put my word like a fire in your mouth. It's very similar language to what's spoken of here. That I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen and I will put my words in his mouth. See that for Jeremiah, Isaiah, other prophets. But doesn't this as well apply to the Lord Jesus Christ? In fact, doesn't it apply in greater measure to the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's explore that a little bit as we consider the promise of the prophet. This passage is not limited to Jesus Christ. Some commentators do that, and I don't think that's appropriate. I think it it includes the other prophets, but it doesn't deny a reference to Jesus. This is, in fact, a prediction of Jesus Christ as the true prophet, precisely like that prediction uh, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. When God declares that to the serpent, he's not merely talking about Jesus. He's talking about His covenant people, his redeemed people throughout history. We see how that happens again and again. Moses leading the people out of Egypt and crushing the head of the serpent with the Red Sea crashing down on Pharaoh's Pharaoh's troops. But then David taking out Goliath and crushing his head with the river stone. Even uh, Jael taking out Sisera by driving the tent peg through his head. There's all kinds of illustrations of this along the way, but they all, while, while fulfilling in some small measure the promise to Eve and Adam in Genesis 3.15, really the curse on the serpent, yet all point forward to the greatest fulfillment of that, Christ on the cross, where he once for all puts death in the grave. Just like that, Expanding, cascading promise, making many applications on the way to its ultimate application. So to this promise in Deuteronomy 18.18, where God says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It applies discreetly to various prophets along the way that God would never abandon his people or leave them wondering. But yet... It comes to its fullest fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ. The final word of God. Consider what Christ says about himself. In John chapter 5, verse 46. Jesus makes clear to us that he understands himself to be, in fact, this fulfillment. He says in 546, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, 
for he wrote about me. What's Jesus referencing? It's almost surely referencing Deuteronomy 18. Let's back this up a bit more. John 17, verse 8, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says, For the words which you gave me, praying to his Father, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. The words which you gave me, the words which you put in my mouth. Again, Jesus understood himself to be this long-anticipated prophet. And then backing up to John 8, 28, in another instance, he says, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, and then specifically, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. He understood that his mediation was not merely to cancel our sin and to wash us clean, as glorious as that is, but to declare God's will that this would be the case. To declare God's will for salvation. And then he says, perhaps most clearly, in John 12, 49 and 50. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me and has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So the presentation that Jesus makes of himself in John's gospel is one that is fully self-aware and conscious that he is in the ultimate expression and fulfillment of this promise that God makes to Moses and to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 18. In other words, Jesus Christ is our prophet sent by God as a mediator to declare to us the will of God for our salvation. It's very interesting that it was, in fact, the spirit of Christ within the prophets that was at work mediating God's word to us all along. That even before his incarnation, 1 Peter 1.11 tells us this, it was the spirit of Christ in the prophets by which the word of God was breathed into them that we might benefit as his people today. It's all about Jesus Christ. In fact, this passage gives us a standard for judging prophets. Yes, but its promise is fulfilled in Christ. He whom we considered last week as both our Redeemer and the light to the nations is he who makes God's will for salvation and righteousness known, not just to Israel, but to all the world, even to South Carolina, even to Florida, even to Afghanistan and Africa and everywhere else where his word is opened up and proclaimed. Stephen references this promise through Moses when describing the highlights of Moses' ministry. When he gives his defense to the Sanhedrin and he's stoned to death, Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, uh, verse 37, he's speaking about Moses' ministry. And he's speaking about very familiar things to the Sanhedrin. But he says, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. So what does that tell us? 
This wasn't just Jesus describing himself and bringing something new. This was Jesus making clear that what you're anticipating, O people of God, is what I am and what I'm bringing. Stephen knows that, and so he hits on that. In John chapter 4, 25, when the Samaritan woman runs back to her town to say, this man knows everything about me, she references this text about the promised prophet Messiah. And says, this is the one. And then the people in John 6, 14, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, seem to reference this text as well. That this is the promised prophet. Philip possibly references this verse in John 1, 45, when he says to Nathaniel, we have found him. Who? Of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then Peter may have cited this verse in direct reference to Christ. Most commentators think so, or at least to the prophets who foretold the coming of Christ when he gives his great sermon in Acts chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. But perhaps most significantly, and what we will in turn consider in many weeks' time when we get there in the series through Matthew, is in Matthew chapter 17, in verse 5, when Jesus goes up on the mountain with three of his dearest disciples, and he meets with his father, testified to by both Moses and Elijah, who appear in John or Matthew 17, verse 5. While he was still speaking, that is Peter, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, the father's voice, said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What then does he say? Listen to him. Hear him. I looked at the Greek in that verse, and I compared it to the Greek in the Septuagint. And it's really just two words, and there are only so many different ways of saying it. But it's almost exactly the same Greek construction as what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse verse 15, where it says, you shall listen to him. It's almost exactly the same as what God says in Matthew 17. Listen to him. Even down to the level of syntax in the original language. So the connection is made again and again in scripture. That Jesus Christ is in fact the ultimate fulfillment. Though other prophets have come. Though they have in some measure, great and small, fulfilled God's promise. By declaring his will to his people in every age. Yet it's Jesus Christ who is the promised prophet, ultimately speaking, at the end of the day. This provision of a prophetic mediator is enforced all the more by the simple fact that God was granting an expressed and good desire of the people in response to their terror at his revelation at Mount Sinai. So what would it be then, having established who this prophet is, having established the goodness of God's promise? Can you imagine if the people stopped up their ears to the message of a true prophet? If they said, we're not going to listen to you. We're not interested in what you have to say. Not only would it be grave disrespect and dishonor to God himself. But it would be gross ingratitude, wouldn't it? I mean, this is what they asked for. And God said, this is a good thing that you ask. And so I will give you this good gift. To reject the prophet then would be an act of gross and egregious ingratitude. 
Children, you have the benefits of growing up in a Christian home where the voice of Jesus Christ will again and again grace your ears, either through preaching in a church setting like this or through family worship or even through reading the Bible yourself or to each other. If you stop up your ears, if you ignore it, if you allow yourself to be distracted by something of lesser value, please note that this would be a grave injustice. It'd be gross ingratitude. It'd be a horrible sin. So when God's commendation accompanies a human request or desire like it does here, where he says they have spoken well in verse 17, then it proves that the said desire is pleasing to him and that it ought to stand firm, but then also you must keep it. You must keep it. If you've asked for it, you must take it. Therefore, in sending the prophets, God provided for the salvation of men as well as the most expedient, the, most, the best possible manner of making clear what that salvation is. How does he continue this provision today? Well, in sending preachers to publish his work in, uh, for the salvation of men, Romans 10, 15. How will they hear um, unless they are sent or unless they have a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? So God sends preachers that you might hear his word. But no man is sufficient for these things in and of himself. And so his sufficiency comes from God alone. And the crowning achievement of God in answer to this good request from the people is in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who in the fullness of time took on human flesh and likeness, becoming a man even as we are, revealing God to us, not in the terrible and fearful thunder and lightning of Mount Sinai, no, but full of grace and truth. Jesus sets out a choice before each of us in John three thirty six. Not just to unbelievers, but to believers. Not just those outside the church, but to those in the church as well. And he says, he who believes in the Son, who listens to the Son, has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son, who does not listen to the Son, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I think in this group, I speak especially to the kids. You do not want to face the wrath of God. In our passage this morning, he says in verse 19, It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That mirrors language in Genesis 9 and in Genesis 42, speaking of the death penalty for shedding innocent blood. That's how serious this is. So today, open your ears. Hear the voice of Christ calling to you. And in obedience, humble yourself before him. And he is gracious and merciful to grant you forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, as it says in John 3. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But to reject that offer, to shut up your ears against a good gift... Of a prophesied word of salvation is to condemn yourself, to bring upon yourself the weight of God's eternal wrath and judgment. None of us can understand fully the gravity of that choice, of that 
threat that's set before us from God. But all of us should recognize that he makes a way of salvation for each of us. By the similitude of the mouth, by this picture here that he says in verse 18, I will put my words in his mouth. God shows that the power of ministers of the gospel, it's not legislative. In other words, I'm not making this up, but it's declarative. It's ministerial. I, as a minister, am supposed to, and this point was pressed home on me on, on Friday. I am supposed to declare to you what God gives me to declare. Now, whether I'm faithful in that or not is between me and him. And you can be a judge of that by testing all that I say and what Dr. Piper says up here by the word of God. But the point is that this is what a minister, what a pastor, what even a prophet is to do or was to do. We're not called upon to invent a message for the church or to innovate a church government, but rather to declare the message, to spread it abroad, that message which God has entrusted to us and to execute, that is to minister the form of of church leadership and government that God has laid out for us in Scripture. And so as we think of officers for this church down the road, that is what we need to keep in mind. Can this man faithfully uphold God's word? Can this man faithfully declare to us God's will for salvation? So we've looked at God's promise of the prophet. We've seen how that comes to full flower and realization in Jesus Christ and the beauty of the gospel. And we have the, um, the rules for the prophet then in the last four verses very briefly. I've already begun to get into them. The first rule is Hear that prophet. Listen to him. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek God. All his thoughts are there is no God. As it says in Psalm 10. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself you will not require of it. You will not demand that I listen to you. You will not hold me accountable. Again in Psalm 10. Why has the wicked spurned God? Because he said to himself you will not require it. The seriousness of this offense cannot be overstated, as I just made plain. But there's a promise in verse 21 and 22 for us. As we think about what's required of us, we think about what's also required of the prophet himself. Look at verse 21. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. This promise here is that falsehood will be exposed. That there's a standard by which those claiming to be prophets or preachers or ministers or whatever, by which they will be judged. And they will be exposed. And in fact, unless they repent, they will be condemned. And men are called upon to enforce just judgment in this connection. What do I mean by that? I don't mean... The enforcement of blasphemy laws by the state, at least not specifically, what I mean by that is that in the church, we must with all sobriety render judgment by being good Bereans, as it says in Acts, going back to the law and the testimony, going back to the word and testing everything we hear by what God makes plain to us in his word. The truth of Moses' words as a prophet is confirmed again and again in the narrative of the Exodus. When he casts down his staff and it becomes a snake and he picks it up again and it becomes a staff, that sign and that wonder was not meant merely to surprise people and cast them into wonderment. Because in fact, 
the sorcerers of Egypt did something similar, but rather it was to confirm that what he said was true. When Elijah on Mount Carmel called down the fire of God upon the offering and the fire fell down and consumed it, it was to confirm that what he said about the Lord God of Israel was true against what the prophets of Baal were saying. And remember, everything they did for hours on end was to no avail. Their God never showed up. They were proven to be false. And they suffered the consequences for that in that account in 2 Kings. But in verse 22, the test of a prophet is the truth of his prediction, the truth of his words, not the working of signs and wonders. Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5 describes the phenomenon of false prophets counseling evil, but who also perform signs and wonders. Why would this happen? Why would this be? If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice. Serve or worship him and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall purge the evil from among you. In the church, we do not have the power of the sword for capital punishment. So what that looks like is a casting out of those who speak lies and spread falsehood in our midst. Pastor Carl Robbins on Friday night and giving me a charge made a point that was really impressed upon me as a minister here and to wherever the Lord calls me. That one of my roles as a shepherd, one of the roles of the elders of a church is to guard the flock against wolves, against false prophets, against false teachers. And to call such as those to repentance. And if they persist, not only in their unbelief, but in their insistence to spread falsehood than to cast them out of the church to excommunicate and to forbid them from bringing their false teaching into the flock to protect you see there's nothing more arrogant than a minister of satan than one who would lie and there are many in the world today spewing forth their lies under the guise of humanism and false religion and all manner of cults But their terrific noise may be safely despised because they have no power, not over our souls. We have nothing to fear from the lies and the deceptions of men because heresy has a shelf life. And no matter how pungent the falsehood may be, it is expiring and it is passing away. So as we consider these marks of a false prophet, consider that God is good to reveal them to us, that we would be wise and shrewd in the discernment of truth and not left wondering. My friends, though he gives us some clues and hints as to how to detect a counterfeit prophet, the most sure and and, and reliable means for identifying falsehood in our present day and age And it's an important skill to be able to have. 
the most sure means is to set ever and always before us the true prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. To set his message before us. To know that inside and out. To love it with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yea, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in so doing, as we grow in familiarity with Jesus Christ and his message, the gospel. Then we can identify the false gospels of our present evil day. Whether they be critical theory. Whether they be... um, Pseudo-Christianity, whether they be Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness doctrine, as confusing and confounding as they can be, or even the seductions of orderly Islam and its suppression of chaos, at least seemingly so, or of atheism and self-reliance and scientism. All of these various lies, these false prophecies, if you will, These false narratives of what is good and true, they all fall away before the rock of our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pose to you, when you do come into church on Sundays, are you coming to check a box and merely to observe religion? Or are you coming to behold the Lord Jesus Christ and to hear his message of saving truth, to grow in familiarity with him, and to worship Him as Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.